Good morning, brothers and a few sisters. Uh, it, is, it is a real honor to uh, be with you this morning and to bring God's word uh, to you. I, uh, I don't get out on the, the pastor's conference circuit, uh, really, so it is a very humbling honor to be able to stand before a, a group of pastors and address you. Uh, I've been pastoring for, I'm into my 16th year and it has uh, bred in me a deep, deep appreciation and respect for uh, pastors and the work that you do. So I'm thankful for you. You've ministered to me already this morning in your singing, and uh, I, I hope you are blessed and strengthened and helped uh, as we look into God's Word uh, this morning. Uh, I have been reading uh, the autobiography of the famous uh, missionary to the New Hebrides, John Payton. And uh, early in his memoir, he records the experience of a particular people group in the most southern part of the New Hebrides, a people named the Anaet Yumis people, which had been reached with the gospel a little prior to Peyton's arrival there uh, on the island. About 3,500 of them had been turned from darkness to light, and these once savage people had become worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And upon their conversion, uh, they longed to have the Bible in their own native tongue, as there had been no book or nor even a page of a book that had ever been written in their language in its history. And so for 15 years, the Anaet Yumis people, these native people, they planted and they prepared arrowroot to pay the 12,000 pounds that were required. Today, that's about $15,000. Uh, the, the money required for the printing and the publishing of the scriptures in their own language. So the missionaries devoted themselves to the work of translating the Bible, but it was these converted savages who labored night and day for 15 years to raise the money needed so that they could possess the written word of God in their own language. And Peyton draws out then this lesson for his readers. Peyton writes, let those who lightly esteem their Bibles think on these things. The labor and proceeds of 15 years for the Bible entire did not appear to these poor converted savages too much to pay for that word of God, which had sent to them the missionaries, which had revealed to them the grace of God in Christ, and which had opened their eyes to the wonders and glories of redeeming love. They had felt and we had observed that in all lands and amongst all branches of the human family, the Holy Bible is wheresoever received and obeyed the power of God unto salvation." It had lifted them out of savagery and set them at the feet of the Lord Jesus. So, brother pastors, I share that quote with you for two reasons this morning. One is that perhaps there's a small number of you here who have been giving yourselves to diligent preparation for God's word, and maybe God wants to move you to a part of the world where they have no written word of God in their language. And maybe he would be stirring in you and raising you up to go to one of those people groups to see the word of God brought to them as it was to the Anaet Yumis people. That's one reason. And I pray that the Lord might do that amongst us today. But really the primary reason actually that I shared that quote with you and that story with you is that God might use it to encourage you and exhort you to uh, take up God's word yourselves, and especially to give yourselves to strenuous, diligent preparation of preaching God's word as if you were so convinced of the Bible's inestimable, inestimable worth in your own life and in the lives of your congregations. So let me pray to that end. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for these dear brothers and sisters who have gathered on this Monday morning to hear from you. And we ask for your blessing and grace upon our examination of the scriptures today. Help us to be moved at what a gift it is that we have the word of God written, that we can just open it up and read your own words to us. 
may we be moved freshly by that and may we give ourselves to study and preparation as if we believe that we have the most precious words in all the universe at our disposal. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, as I considered the title of the message that uh, Pastor Ed asked me to address, which I think at one point said strenuous, but now it says diligent, and I'm happy that it be both of those words. Uh, I thought of one particular verse in 2 Timothy, so I want to take a few minutes and uh, consider this one verse with you, draw out three observations from the passage, and then give some uh, practical suggestions, some practical considerations about how we might... uh, how we might go about preparing in light of what this one verse has to say to us. So that one verse is 2 Timothy 2.15. This is a call to diligent, strenuous preparation. And I, I'm, I'm using this verse because I want you to know that it's not, it's not my call. It's not Pastor Ed's call to us. It is the call of God's word upon us who handle God's word. So hear God's word from 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This is the word of God, brothers and sisters. Thanks be to God. I want to take just, as I said, a few minutes to note Uh, Three observations from this passage. I have strenuously prepared a three-point alliterated outline for you. That is not a necessity, but it is what I have done for this particular occasion. I want us to consider the activity to which we are called, the audience before whom we carry out this calling, and then the attitude with which we are to fulfill this calling. Uh, Point number one, the activity, the work that we are called to. Do your best, Paul writes to Timothy. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Uh, That is our charge. That is the call. That is the work that we have been tasked to carry out to strenuously study and prepare to handle God's word rightly. God's word, the word of truth. It is, it is remarkable, it is troubling to me at least, how, how casually sometimes we can say the words, the word of God. And we can just toss, even I just said, this is the word of God, and you said, thanks be to God. And I think that's a good discipline, I think that's a good practice to do in the churches, but we, we need to be careful that we don't just say that trivially or lightly. These are the words of God. What, what a weighty, majestic, eternally impactful, holy word is the word of God. Paul says it's the word of truth because it has been given, it has been declared by the God of truth, the God who never lies. And so it is demanded of us preachers that we handle it rightly. We are not called to preach our own ideas, our own preferences, our own hobby horses. We are stewards. We're responsible to pass on accurately what he has said. Nothing more, nothing less. I trust a number of you have been perhaps in an overseas context where you have uh, preached a sermon and somebody stood next to you and they were translating your sermon because you weren't speaking the language that the people there gathered uh, could understand. So I, I had one occasion where that was so several years ago in India and this brother Suresh stood and I was, I was preaching, but I'd have to stop every 10 or 12 seconds and then he would, he would say what I was, at least I hope he was saying what I was saying, right? But, but you get a feel for the importance of this task. I'm, I'm preaching the word of God. I don't know what these people are hearing, actually. I'm relying upon this man 
who knows their language to take what I am saying and communicate what I am saying to them so that they can understand it. And that is our calling. That is our charge. God has given us words. He has given us a message. And we are called to take what he has said and make sure that it is understandable. We're not called to just go off on a riff on our own and just decide what we think people need to hear. But we are to speak what he has said. I got a little taste of this just in this experience of preparing this message because, uh, you know, Ed asked me a few months ago if I would come and I would do this and the theme had been set and the title of the message had been set. And so as I, as I thought for these few months, I'm thinking, okay, well, I, I'm, I'm being asked to come here and do something. I, I need to think through it. The agenda has been set. He's told me what, it is. he didn't tell me what text. He didn't, he didn't give me too much other than the, the title. But I knew I, I wanted to reset, re- represent well his intentions, his ambitions in putting this conference together. It was a stewardship that I had. I couldn't get up here and just, you know, brothers, I want to talk to you today about uh, the importance of pastoral visits and caring for the flock well and one-on-one sitting in there. I could preach a very, I, I, well, I, I, that would be a very good instruction for you, but that's not what I was asked to do. I was asked to talk about strenuous study and preparation. It was my job to take what I had been given, the charge that I'd been given, and just represent that faithfully. How much more careful should we be then in handling not just a, a message that a dear pastor, I love you, but 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 we're talking about God is telling us, God is telling us, here's my words. They, they have power to raise the dead, power to sanctify, power to transform from darkness into light. Take my words and communicate it to my people. Handle those words rightly. And we should be all the more diligent in view of the accounting that we will give to him for how we've done that on that final day, which leads to our second observation, the audience before whom we are to carry out this calling. Won't do a poll here in the room, but I trust that some of us gathered here today, perhaps yet, how many, I am going to ask, if you preached a sermon yesterday in your church, could you just raise your hand? I'm just curious how many, that's half of you maybe. So, I don't know if you, if yesterday morning, if you addressed 20 people in that gathering, or 80, or 200, or even 2,000, but ultimately how big that gathering was yesterday, that gathering that you regularly address, or how much growth you're seeing in that gathering, whether we're measuring growth in number of people or maturity of the saints whom God has given to you. The size of the gathering, the maturing of the gathering is relatively insignificant. It's not insignificant at all, but it is relatively insignificant compared to the one before whom we are called to carry out this task of preaching and preparing to preach. Paul writes to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved in the sight of God, right? Approved in God's sight. A worker who has no need to be ashamed before God, rightly handling the word of truth. We, we do not give ourselves to the work of preaching or put in the strenuous labor of preparing to preach so as to gain the approval of other people. Do we? You should pause. You should hesitate because sometimes we can. Sometimes we can be tempted to. But ultimately, we don't. We do not preach. We do not prepare to preach so as to satisfy or please or gain the approval of people. But we got to guard our hearts because we can be tempted that way. We can work hard for the wrong reasons. We can work hard out of selfish ambition, out of the love that we have for the applause of other people or to sure up some emotional insecurity on our part. We can forget it. And our egos can get quite puffed up when people make much of our preaching. But if our egos get puffed up much when they are affirming our preaching, they will be deflated and crushed when they are not thrilled with our preaching. And if you've tried, if you've had it as an unholy 
yearning for the approval of people, you, you will get crushed because the, the affirmation comes, but then there's criticism, and the criticism oftentimes contradicts each other. Right? Too, too much law for this one sister. Give us more. Just give us grace. We don't need imperatives. They talk to somebody else. I wish there was more application. I wish there was... I, we get the grace thing, but let, give us more. Hey, it, you can go crazy. <laughs> All right, struck a nerve there. Okay. But how people feel about us and our labors will prove to be a very small thing on that day when we stand before the one who has authoritatively spoken in the scriptures and has commissioned us to rightly handle his own word. In this, we are called to act like the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, the religious leaders came to him, and it was, it was flattery, but they were true. They were right when they said to him, uh, this is in Matthew chapter 22, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. And I, the, the literal rendering, I think in the ESV, there is a footnote there. Literally, it's, it reads, you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you do not look at people's faces. I love that verse. And praise God, that's, what Jesus, that's the way Jesus lived. Because if Jesus had been unhealthily moved by people and their opinions, then when he was hanging on that cross for our sins, and they were taunting him, come down, if you're the Messiah, save yourself. If he was given to coveting their approval of him, he would have gotten down. He could have, right? He could have gotten down from the cross and we'd all be in hell. Praise God, he was moved with a yearning to please his father, to speak his father's words, to do his father's will. That is our salvation. I was, a few Sundays ago, I was preaching from Matthew 18, and those words about church discipline and, 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 and the, the binding and the loosing. And, and there was a man in our church who was listening to that sermon. And a few years prior, uh, we'd had a situation, a difficult situation, where we had to discipline a young woman out of the church, and it was his daughter. And it was an ugly situation at a number of levels. And it was difficult with this man and his wife also trying to shepherd them as we were excommunicating their daughter. And I'm preaching Matthew 18 three Sundays ago. And Jim, oops, I just said his name. Well, Jim, that's a very common name. I meant, did I, I meant Bill. <laughs> Listen, I don't do the conference thing. I don't really know how many people are going to hear this sermon in my, in my church. He's out, he's out there listening to me, and there's a temptation. What is he thinking? I'm looking at his face. And the Lord says, you don't worry about what that, that man's face says. You're preaching in the sight of God. Am I being faithful to the text? Am I handling it rightly? That was Paul's ambition. He says to the Thessalonians, we, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. It's that approval after testing that Paul has in view when he writes of presenting ourselves to God here in 2 Timothy 2.15 as those approved. Let's be clear about this approval. It is wonderfully good news, brothers, especially on Monday mornings. It is wonderful news that our approval in the sense of our right standing before God is not on the basis of any works that we have or that we can do. It isn't on the basis of our strenuous preparation to bring God's word to God's people. It is on the free grace of God received by faith in the finished work of Christ. We are justified before God, not on the basis of how good a preacher we are or how hard we've worked at preaching, God has rescued us in Christ. And Paul has already reminded Timothy of this before he charges him to work diligently to handle that word because in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul speaks to Timothy of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, 
but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That is our salvation. Jesus lived the life that we failed to live. He died on the cross for our sins. He was raised for our justification. He plucked us up out of the deadness of our own souls. He opened our eyes to see the glory and the sufficiency of his son. And we came to him and we found life in him. That is the God to whom we are presenting ourselves. We are complete in him. But having been saved by such a gracious God, would we not long to, to, to put ourselves in a position where we can get, find his approval, his delight in the way that we've handled his word? We don't want to be ashamed of how we've handled the life-giving word of such a gracious God. We do not want to blush before him on that final day. My wife, I can use these names. <laughs> My wife, Michelle, she, we, we homeschool our children, and, and, and my oldest, Hallie, she even knows I'm sharing this. It was actually her idea for me to share this. So she's, okay, she, she, she's got her math, and she's got a tablet, and she's doing her math, and, and my wife goes out, she's got to run some errands. Hallie, I want you to you do your math, and then you've got these different things to do. My wife's gone for an hour. She comes back, and Hallie's on problem five. She's like, what have, what have you been doing? I said, well, you know, I got a text message, and I was texting a little bit, and then I was on Pinterest, and she's honest because we know what she's doing with her phone. Another sermon for another time, right? <laughs> and, she, and she said to me, when I, we were talking about this message, she said, I, it was like I felt ashamed. I felt embarrassed. There was a reckoning. There was an accounting before one whom she loved. Hallie was not in danger of getting kicked out of the family. But she felt some measure of shame when there was that accounting to give to the one who had charged her with specific instructions, and she had just been lazy. So understand, when we talk about strenuously laboring to preach God's word, we're not talking about our standing with God hanging on our labors in the word. But just because we're not talking about our standing with God, that doesn't mean it's irrelevant. We are called to labor strenuously, knowing that there is an evaluation coming. So remember, Paul says to Timothy, and I now say to you, remember that day of judgment. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3 of those presenting wood and hay and stubble, and those with precious metals, there will be a reckoning. And that's not meant to scare you, but it's meant to sober us. And the goodness of the God in whose presence we labor and our awareness of the accountability that we have to him for how we've handled his own words, that yearning that we would have having been saved by such a kind and good and loving and faithful God, that longing that we would have on that final day to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, that yields a particular attitude in the preacher as he prepares to handle that word. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best. It says in the New American Standard Bible, be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, this word, I do think the NA, I mean, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I do think the NASB rendering captures the original language better than the ESV's do your best. The word means to be especially conscientious in discharging an obligation, to be zealous or eager to take pains, to make every effort 
So there's this issue of diligence or being strenuous in our preparation. There is a a diligence. There's a spending and being spent, as Paul would say to the Corinthians. We're to be not slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit as we serve the Lord, and particularly as we serve the Lord in this act of preparing to preach his own word. And there are many factors that may diminish our zeal and our eagerness and our intensity of effort. We may feel physically exhausted. We may be emotionally weary or we may be personally hurting. We may be distracted by hobbies or overwhelmed by many other important pastoral tasks. And because it's a private work, because the work of preparing is private, we can be tempted to cut corners in our preparation. So it is good to hear Paul say to pastors, do your best, be zealous, be earnest, make every effort to handle that word rightly. I'm not advocating that we spend 40 hours of preparation on each sermon to the neglect of important pastoral responsibilities or other important familial responsibilities. But I am advocating that you would take the time that you have, the precious time that you have to prepare to preach God's word and that you would use that time that you have to work diligently at it. Not not dilly-dallying, not fumbling around Twitter or Pinterest or texting, not not allowing yourself to be given to diversion in those precious few moments or hours that you have to think hard and work hard and pray hard to prepare to prepare a satisfying meal for the precious sheep that Christ has entrusted to you. We we should not expect, we should not think that our own personal charisma in the pulpit will offset the personal laziness that we would have in attending to his word. We could fool our people that way, but we will not fool the Lord before whom we will give an account. So that, brothers, is the call of God on us as preachers. It's a call to diligent study and preparation. And that call leads to some practical considerations. Uh, As Pastor Ed said, there's so many different styles. There's so many different methods for how to prepare a sermon. I cannot walk you through. It would be unhelpful to try to walk you through a process. Here's how you should prepare your sermons. But what I want to do is give you 10 suggestions, and they will be relatively brief, but I want to give you 10 suggestions that I think actually are universally applicable, though how you apply them may be different than how the pastor across the row applies them because of what maybe you're full-time paid by the church, maybe you're bivocational, maybe you're not paid at all. Maybe you are the only pastor on staff, maybe you have a large staff. There's a whole host of factors, I think, that contribute to what this earnestness and this diligence might look like But I think these are 10 suggestions that are practically useful and worth your considering, discussing, maybe talking about over snacks and lunchtime, and I'm just going to give them to you, and I hope they are a help to you. Number one, they all begin, if you're note-taking, they all begin with prepare strenuously by, dot, dot, dot. So you could just write in prepare strenuously by and draw a line down there, and we'll just run through these uh, hopefully relatively quickly. Prepare strenuously by bleeding Bibline, or is it Bibline? How do you say that? Bibline? Do you know what I'm talking about, brothers? This, this quote, this famous quote from Spurgeon, where he's referring to John Bunyan, and I'm just going to read you the quote because it is, it is so sweet. Spurgeon says, Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. It is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scripture models. And what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. He says, read anything of his. He's referring to John Bunyan. Read anything of his and you will see that it is almost like reading the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with scripture. And though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his pilgrim's progress without continually making us feel and say, why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere. His blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his soul, his very soul is full of the word of God. 
And so what I'm saying here, number one, is the best thing that you can do to prepare strenuously is be a man of the word when it has nothing to do with your sermons. I pray that studying the Bible, that reading the Bible, that feeding on the Bible is not something that is relegated to your job. But it is the overflow of love for God and communion with God and fellowship with God. If it's not that, it'd be wonderful for you here today to just confess that to another brother. Maybe, maybe you need to confess that to other elders that you're struggling to love the word. But everything we do, all, all of our, uh, uh, I was, uh, Brian Davis, you mentioned Brian Davis. I got this point for after a, a phone conversation with Brian Davis eight days ago. I was working on this message. The man prayed for me at the end of the call. He was a living, and I just thought at this point, he was a living Bible. He prays scripture again and again and again and again, just scripture everywhere. And, and I was sharing this with him, and he said, he said John MacArthur was asked one time uh, how long it takes him to prepare a sermon. He was about 70 years old. He said, how long does it take you to prepare a sermon? He said, it's about 70 years. <laughs> Meaning everything that he had been doing. So I'm, I'm advocating, number one, I got to move through these, but bleed, make the Bible your life. Live on the Bible. That's the first thing I think about strenuously preparing to preach. Number two, prepare strenuously by planning carefully. Plan carefully. Uh, there are, as I alluded to a few minutes ago, there are many pastoral tasks outside of preaching. Uh, they are important. There's good work. There's pastoral visits. There's helping. There's tending to the children's ministry workers and the deacons and leading the elders. There's all kinds of important responsibilities that comes with pastoring. But there is no pastoral charge backed by the kind of heavenly weight as the words preach the word. I think, brother, I think you're going to come to this in Second Timothy four, if I'm not mistaken, right, Mike? I charge you, I, it's written somewhere and I passed over it earlier, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Okay, there, is, there is not a responsibility that we're given as pastors with that kind of weight behind it as preach the word. So we must set apart time, our best time, to labor to preach the word. I don't know how many hours you need to do that, and it's good to talk with your elders. It's good to talk to other pastors to set realistic expectations for the number of hours. But whatever the number of hours are, give your best hours and block them off to be interrupted only by the most severe of emergencies to study to handle the word. Some of us, like, more like myself, honestly, we're given to being reclusive and we can sit in that study maybe too long. But others of you, you can get busy with so many other things and then not have the time that you need and really that God has given you to handle the word publicly. So plan carefully. Again, all of these need to be worked out in smaller groups and discussions. But number three, prepare strenuously by doing your own work first. Do your own work first. I am saying this to guard you against the temptation, uh, the danger I would say it's a pastoral malpractice of plagiarism. It is very tempting. It's very easy. It has never been easier. You don't have to even buy books. You could just go online, listen to a sermon, and preach that sermon, and probably nobody would know. God knows. And so if we are going to present ourselves to God as workers who are approved, if we're going to be diligent in our preparation, we need to be diligent in our preparation. We've got to say what we have seen with our own eyes. Study the passage for yourself. We have a discussion about this. Before you look at the commentaries. If you're in the minor prophets and you literally don't understand what you're reading, I understand there's a help in getting to a commentary sooner than later. But build your sermon, especially your main idea, your, your general structure of a sermon, your points, build it on what you have seen. Spend, make sure the first part of your preparation is devoted to just you and the text. Maybe multiple translations of the text, Greek and Hebrew, if you've got that in your repertoire, but looking at word studies, cross-references, grammar, syntax, uh, thinking about the tone of the passage and the surrounding context of the passage. See these things for yourself to present the sermons of other people as your own will be an occasion of blushing on that final day, even if your congregations are impressed with the preaching. So do your own work first. But number four, 
seek help from others at the right time. I am pro-commentaries. I have found it helpful later, good bit later on into my prep, to actually listen to a sermon or two from other pastors who've handled this passage before. I think there's there's insights to glean. There may be a helpful illustration or an anecdote or a Something that just sparks a thought. So I have, I, I'm helped by other, uh, pastors, by other scholars who have labored in the word before me. We're not coming at this for the first time, and that's a good thing to be mindful of. But again, minimally, do the work first yourselves. Get a main idea. See what that text is saying. Others can help you then. But do the work yourselves. And while we're talking about other people, I don't just mean the commentaries or other pastors, but actually involve your wife in the process. Wives, those of you who are wives here, who are pastors' wives, thank you. I don't know how many of you who are ladies here are pastors' wives. Thank you for the ways that you bear with us when we are distracted on Saturday nights or Sunday morning, when we are having dinner with you and we're not really having dinner with you. Thank you, sisters, for loving the Lord and your churches as you sacrifice your husband in some ways for that. But brother pastors, let's involve our families in our sermon prep. They can help us. They've given me illustrations for today's message. Uh, Speak with your elders. Study with your elders. Another pastor in our church, Jason Tyrell, who's a wonderful, wonderful pastor, serves on staff with me, just gathered. He's doing a short book study of the book of Ruth, and he had lunch on Friday at noon, four consecutive Sundays, and he just invited anybody who would come on Friday at noon, and they just opened up the word, and they read the passage, and they just asked questions and talked about it. And so he's getting everybody, he's getting the help of other people, not just the experts, but even the people he's going to preach to. And it's preparing us. It prepares our hearts for the Lord's day and hearing the word preached. So get the help of others at the right time. Number five, uh, prepare strenuously by cultivating your heart's affections. The hard work of sermon preparation is not limited to understanding and explaining the text of Scripture. But it's also, it also will include feeling something of the glory of the text that we preach. We're out in Tijuana, and Raymond, I don't know if you were there uh, at the moment, Raymond used this phrase from the Valley of Vision, where he talked about in the minister's preaching, that prayer in the Valley of Vision, it says, it's a prayer, give, give me a feeling sense of the things that I preach. And that's part of our preparation. Not just that we would be, you know, bookish and very precise, but that we would feel something of the glory of what we're talking about. Preachers who do their best, who are earnest, who are diligent, who are making every effort, will engage the Bible with both their mind and their heart. They will will first read that passage and meditate upon that passage and let that passage do its work in our own souls, repenting, aspiring, humbling, putting ourselves under that word. We're to keep a close watch on our lives and the teaching. And one of God's best graces to you, brother pastors, is that you have that time to study his word for extended periods of time for your own sanctification. We want to feel the weight of glory that is that passage before we ever step in to deliver it to other people. Number six, prepare strenuously by thinking affectionately of your flock. Think affectionately of your flock. That's part, I believe, of our study of the word is thinking about the specific people that we're going to be bringing that word to. Uh, One of my favorite books on, it's not a book on preaching, but it's on pastoring. It's called The Reformed Pastor by Richard Baxter. And he says, I just can't get this quote out of my, my mind. He says to pastors in that book, every time we look upon our congregations, let us believingly remember that they are the purchase of Christ's blood and therefore should be regarded by us with the deepest interest and the most tender affection. Brother pastors, keep that in mind when you get up to stand before your congregation this coming Sunday. The precious precious sheep for whom Christ shed his blood and it's helpful. I, I, I don't know if you all have member directories. We have a membership directory. It's printed, and it's on an app as well. And I've got the pictures of our members at my disposal. It sits there on my desk. Again, it's in my phone. And as I'm thinking about the passages, as I'm thinking about the points, as I'm thinking about application, I want to be thinking of the people who are going to be hearing. I want to be seeing them. I can think their name, but seeing their face is different. 
And I want to think about them, and I want to see them, and I want to pray for them. How is this word that I'm about to speak, how is it going to be heard by that couple that is grieving now their second miscarriage in the, in the span of the past year? How is this strong exhortation from Scripture going to be received by that very sensitive brother whose conscience is so pricked by his sin that any time he hears an imperative, he just feels crushed and questioning whether he's saved? We're not to preach to please people, but we do want to aim to serve and love and bless the particular people whom God has entrusted to our care. So remember them, pray for them, treasure them. It is, if you're, if you're employed, if you're paid by a church, it is their generosity that is even giving you the opportunity to study. Has that blown you away in the past month? <sighs> I mean, that is a regular, these dear people are setting apart and our economy is challenging and uh, it, they are setting apart their money so that I can be set apart to study the word and bring it to them. What a privilege that is. Let us think about our sheep as we prepare to study. Number seven, prepare strenuously by aspiring to make progress. Aspire to make progress. I don't need to say much here because, Pastor Ed, in your introductory remarks, you, you made that point. First Timothy 4, uh, 13 and following, Paul writes to Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. He says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. We might not be the best. We are called, I mean, do your best. I don't think that is the best translation of the, that word, but it is encouraging. Do your best. Don't do Brian Davis's best or John MacArthur's best. Or, I, 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 there's, yeah, I, I'm just not going to be some guys, but I could do my best. That's encouraging but we can grow. We should be growing. Our people should be able to see progress. So here's free counsel that I have not yet taken, which is uh, the Simeon Trust workshops I hear are golden. Any, raise your hand. You've been to a Simeon Trust workshop. Look around. That's okay. Uh, Maxwell, get me signed up for the next one in Westchester. You, you just take care of it. And that, now, now there's accountability. Okay. Uh, Raymond gave away at the, the, the pastor's event in Westchester a few weeks ago, Raymond gave away a, a wonderful little book called Small Preaching, which is the whole premise of the book is you're not going to change your whole paradigm of preaching if you've been preaching for a decade or, but you can make little changes to help you grow. And this is little short chapters called Small Preaching, very helpful little insights to think, just growing in that craft, in that skill of putting a sermon together. Uh, also feedback and constructive criticism is a helpful, challenging but helpful way of making progress. We have our staff sits down on Mondays and we do regular service evaluations and the brothers in the room, they tell me what they affirm. Praise God for this. I was really encouraged by this. I thought you'd, I thought this was a little unclear. I thought it would have been better if you had, you need that kind of feedback, not just from other pastors, but other members of the church can help you. Even the critics, even the ones who want more law and the ones who want less law, you can learn from the feedback that they give you. So uh, aspire to make progress. Number uh, eight, prepare strenuously. Here's a whole sermon. Prepare strenuously by remembering to exalt Jesus. You have not adequately prepared. It is. This is, this is an hour or it's, it's a minute here. You have not adequately prepared to preach if you have not reckoned with how this or that specific passage of Scripture exposes our need for or prepares the way for, or prophesies of, or highlights, or is embodied by, or flows from the work of Christ for us. We are to preach him and him crucified. It is in beholding the glory of the Lord that we're being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. It is as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That is how we run the race that is set before us. Even this phrase, word of truth here, if you look back at the context, it's clearly referring to the gospel word. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. The word of truth is the word of God, which is the gospel word. So we must think and labor to make sure that our sermons, whatever passage of scripture we are preaching from that day, that it exalts the person and work of the Lord Jesus. It's a vast subject. That's enough for now. Number nine, prepare strenuously by trusting God's sovereign activity. 
this is part of the preparation to preach, is to remember that your preparation is of no help without the Lord's blessing. It will often seem, I mean, sometimes I hear about what's happening at, at Parker's church, you know, Ed and Anna's son, Parker, from nine people in, in 2020 when he got there, gathering now on Sundays, 200 or so. God does that. Praise God, God does that. I, don't, I haven't seen that. <laughs> Sometimes you look around and it doesn't seem like God is doing anything with our preaching. The church doesn't seem to be growing. I can't tell the people are growing. They're opposing changes that I want to make in the church. And there will be temptation then to cut corners in our preaching because what good does it really do anyway? Well, first and foremost, we go back to that accounting and the fact that we labor in the sight of God. We present ourselves to him but it's also super helpful to remember that anything that can happen, anything that does happen, it's all because of the sovereign power of God. I got two separate text messages this morning from my two dear daughters, Hallie is 16 and Felicity is 15, and they both, without knowing it, they both texted me, John 6:63. it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And they know that that's dear to me because it's written right there. I need to see that every Lord's Day, every Monday morning that I'm addressing a group of pastors, which is just this one time. (laughs) The, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. In our preaching, as in so many other activities of life, we do something, and God does everything. As we strenuously labor, we must lean upon and rely in the sovereign activity of God. Number 10, finally, prepare strenuously by uh, resting in Christ's finished work. Rest in Christ's finished work. A couple of months ago, I preached, we're, we're working through the book of Acts, And uh, I was preaching from Acts 15 on the sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And and as it was, you know, our evaluation, sometimes you get down those steps and you you finish preaching and you're like, that that was not, uh, I hope the Lord used it. But sometimes you get down and you're like, that was was a pretty decent sermon. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's true, right? Sometimes you, all right, you're like, I don't know. That's how I feel. Sometimes it's rare. Sometimes I'm like, that was, that was it. And, and other, most times it's like, eh, I hope God will use it. Well, this was one I honestly felt like, this, that, was a, that was a strong word. And I had labored in that. I had labored particularly over the introduction because I had this idea of this, this thought of, I didn't see that coming. And that's kind of how I introduced the sermon. I didn't see that coming. Because you, who could have seen this split between Paul and Barnabas uh, after all that they had done together? And so I kind of started, that was my introduction to just draw people in. And I had a way of illustrating that, but I actually was thinking about a couple in our church that was just had, dealing with a miscarriage. I thought, that's, they're not going to, that, that would be an unsympathetic thing to say to them right now. So I, I moved away, I thought of a different illustration, and, and, I, and, I was, and I brought to our church's attention this, there was a situation, a sad situation, they're all too common these days, but about a it had just become public news, a well-known church in our, in our area where the senior pastor had to resign amidst allegations of an extramarital affair. And I, I alluded to that of saying, you know, on one Lord's Day, they're showing up and they're, I didn't say any names or anything, but I, you're, you're showing up to hear the preacher. Next Sunday, he's resigned because of a, a scandal that's been exposed and an affair. Well, I don't remember the exact wording that I used that, that morning, but it was very troubling to one particular couple in our congregation who was there. Uh, I had, as I said, I had not mentioned any names, but they were former members of this church, and they had a very close relationship with the woman who had been associated with this pastor whose name was being thrown around, and they had actually invited that woman to come to our church that day. She was on a vacation with her husband, so she did not come, but they were confident. They knew this woman. They were confident that she was being, that she had been slandered that their own pastor, and now, now their own pastor, here they are coming to church, they've invited this grieving, this broken woman to come to our church, and they're hearing their own pastor now kind of jump on the bandwagon with slander without having the information straight. And they waited, they sat through that whole sermon. And they approached me quickly afterwards and said, we need to talk. 
and I have never heard a we need to talk like that before. And I went away with them, and they were really angry with me. And like legitimately, like rightly angry. Like I wasn't sinful. There was no raging and yelling and screaming, but they were angry. And I mean, I, I have never experienced anything like that. It was, I was just crushed. It was like 24 hours. I was in a, I was just in a stupor. And I, I share that in closing to remind you of what you already know, brothers, that our best efforts are blemished. They're blemished in a lot of ways. But even when we sincerely do our best, we come up short. And that's why I want to remind you at the end of this sermon on giving ourselves to strenuous labor and preparation that all of the work we can give really flows out of the rest that we have in Christ. It was so sweet to me on that Monday morning, about two months ago, to just remember that I am justified and I am complete, not because of my preaching, but because Jesus knew me, and Jesus loved me, and Jesus died for me. And I hope you'll remember that as we keep thinking about growing as strong preachers, that you would remember that nobody preached like Jesus. I mean, right, they said, they finished the sermon out. No one, I mean, never heard preaching like this, the way this man preaches, and they killed him. But they did not take his life from him. He laid it down of his own accord so that people like you and me could be saved and brought into his heavenly kingdom. And he says now to us pastors, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Don't rejoice that you preach great sermons. Don't pout too much if you preach okay sermons. We want to grow. But in the end, rejoice that your names are written in heaven, sealed with the precious blood of Christ. That is the fuel to help us labor faithfully in his service. Thank you for listening, dear brothers. I hope you've been encouraged. Let me, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the stewardship that we have to handle your word. What an indescribable and undeserved blessing it is that we might be able to stand before others and herald your life-giving words. We pray that you would help us to rest in Christ and that from the rest that we have in him, we would give ourselves to laboring faithfully for your glory and for the good of our saints, uh, your saints who are the sheep that you've entrusted to us. We ask all of this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. 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 Amen.